that was a journey I wanted to be on from a long, long time ago. And so with that in mind, when you think about, okay, taking the skill sets and experiences from investment banking and private equity investing is one of the things that we do in investment banking and private equity is we have to get answers to the questions, why? Hey, I'm so excited to share today's interview with Charlie McElvain with you. Charlie is the CEO and chairman of Cone Oil. And as you'll hear in this conversation, over the last 20 years, he has spent an enormous amount of intellectual horsepower, effort, and words to transform Cohen, their mission, their vision, and their path moving forward. We talk about selling a part of the company after building it into a regional powerhouse. We talk about differentiating yourself in a very crowded and fragmented market and how to build a team and company culture that allows you to not only scale, but to keep a very keen eye on your company's targeted goals. Charlie is an inspiring leader and the type of executive that I aspire to be at some point in the future. I think you will potentially as well. Here is my conversation with Charlie McElvain. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. All righty, Charlie. I want to start off with a question for you. First of all, thank you for coming on the show. Pleasure. Sorry, I'm excited to, I'm excited to interview you, so I'm, I'm already too many steps down the path here. Um, what is the worst and the best part of working day-to-day with your brother in a business? I mean, the best part is there is real symmetry. Symmetry in the sense that we are both aligned. We're going down a similar path together. I don't think there's a question of trust or support. I can say this for an honest fact. There's never been an issue around who has the bigger Christmas tree present (laughs) or present under the Christmas tree. Yeah. There isn't a who has more or who has less. Uh, I, fact is, I bought him his first watch with my paper money. Oh wow! So the the best on the best side, uh, unlike other partners, and by the way, we have an office that has a partner office. We both sit in this office together, so there isn't, you know, one door for one office, one in the, in, into another, uh, and that's on purpose. Because I think when our team comes and has discussion, it is a flat earth here. And there isn't two con- there aren't two conversations. It's not a front door and a back door. So that's that's the best part. I mean, as a, as relates to a partner, um, the worst part, and I would I think worst is only because you asked for one and then the other. The worst yeah, maybe that was a little harsh. Shouldn't be put into worst as in God this sucks or this is really something I really would not want to do. I mean, if there is a worse part. Um, or less suboptimal parts, sometimes you do break through that professional veneer and barrier, and sometimes it could be a little more direct. But that also has a lot of productivity to it because you can cut through issues pretty quickly. Yeah. You know, he has a law background. I have a business background. I think he has a high-level thinking kind of approach, and he is good at allowing or having folks, if you like, walk around the block once before you land on something. I'm probably more transactional, uh, more dive in, fix it, more detailed. 
and and that kind of is a interesting compliment that kind of mixes between that best and worst construct that you laid out at the beginning. I'm just always interested by different teams that come together and you know the Olympics are going on right now and there's certain basketball teams sure. in the Olympics and they've been playing together forever on the same sure. you know national team and they know each other's moves and the pick and roll and all that and yeah. then US just kind of throws together all these all-stars and say you know make it work yeah. but um, I, I have to imagine that to some degree, if it's not pick and roll chemistry, there is a degree of chemistry that you have just from being proximate to each well, other. Well, there has so to long. be in part because like culture does start at the top and trickle down. Yeah. And if it comes out of that door mixed, discombobulated, contradicting, that's a problem. So to your point and your analogy, to have to have the medley relay in swimming, you need someone that does backstroke. They start breaststroke, butterfly, and free. And not everybody is good as good at breast as they breaststroke as they are freestyle or whatever the sort of combinations are. So I think that to get a medley, you need people to have those roles, but they have to have that commonality. If you don't have that goal, if you are at cross purposes, that's an issue. And that goes back to hearkening back to your your first question. I think you know best part is that there is a lot of symmetry there. So in the context of a company like Cohen Oil, you talk about you need that kind of North Star, you need that goal, you need that mission. What has the mission or goal been in the past and how has that been changing? Because it's, it's a company that's been around since 1923, but this yeah. is kind of a new chapter as recently as 2017 where you could argue maybe you'd say a, a different vision or a more specific vision has kind of been plucked or selected. Two years, we're going to be 100. Wow. Big number. Uh, aren't many companies that are 100 years old. No. And what we call ourselves is a 95-year-old startup. Okay. That seems a little playful. Maybe in this world, you were co- maybe accused of co-opting what seems and sounds cool, particularly in a podcast t- context. Hey, startup. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. I think Darwinism is a real thing in a corporate context as much as it is on a species context. And if we don't adapt, we got to have a problem. So we're in a fast-changing environment and convenience, and we needed to adapt. We needed to change. And if you take a look at our timeline, you know, we started in 1923. A guy named Raymond Ross came back from World War I with a World War I war bond and opened up his first station and then expanded to this, that, and the other. And then in 1925 or so, a guy named Charlie Cohen came in. Ultimately, he wound up controlling the business in 1945 after the war became one of the largest dealer networks east of the Mississippi for tires, batteries, accessories, and fuel, sold home furnishings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then there was a period of time where they didn't invent and didn't reinvest, and there was a point of decline. So we had to pick it up at a certain point and build it. For the first 10 years, when we bought this thing in in 2000, the first 10 years, it wasn't me around. I was in New York. I was in investment banking and private equity and uh, which I did for 25 years. And Andy was here making a go of it, having kind of left the law to try to be an operating business and just try to figure it out. And it took probably 10 years to clean up 50 plus years worth of stuff and then to figure out what do we want to be. Coming forward, I think, I think our vision and our mission is clear. And I, can, I actually feel very confident. You pick any one of our senior leaders, you get them in a room individually, and you ask them what's going on around here, I'll bet you that they say the same thing, maybe in different words, but I'll bet you they say the same thing. I think the song sheet is tight. 
and our vision is to be the convenience chain in our, in our market area with the highest customer loyalty. And that we look to do that through our food, our food service offer, through our customer service and our retail environment. People know that. And our mission, different than vision, our mission, day-to-day mission is to impress and satisfy guests with every visit and make their lives simpler. So when a guest comes into our store as a team member, you know, the mission should be kicking in. We're going to try to impress and satisfy that person. We want them to return. And so I think that we've established that. We've organized our thinking around that. Our actions show that. Our food is excellent and differentiated. We make our food in store. We are not commissary, you know, taking from commissary in a plastic bag, putting in a microwave, putting in a cardboard box and say, here, isn't that good? We have fresh, not frozen chicken. Our recipe for marinade, our recipe for for the breading, hand breading it in a certain way, cooked in trans-fat-free oil, and it's hormone-free protein. And it's made literally within minutes of somebody consuming it. That's a totally different experience. Hard, but it's a totally different experience. Our JoJo's, which are our Western cut fries, our natural Idaho potatoes, our coffee is bean to cup. It's ground right before you, guaranteed fresh, guaranteed hot. Our pizza we make in store from scratch, 10 minutes. You can't beat it, 10 bucks for a pie. So I think those are different points. Yes, we have subs. Yes, we have breakfast sandwiches. We have a breakfast casserole. We have breakfast offer. I mean, it's a harder path, but it's a differentiated path. And so our team knows that. And there's something I'd love to explore more of this kind of vision of the present and the future. But I want to take a step back because what I find a large majority of people are in search of is that mission. So part of the reason you're saying your senior executives would be able to more or less reiterate it, the, the script is tight and people could latch onto it, is when there is clarity of vision and there is a vision that is compelling. It's not, hey, we're going to, mm-hmm. you know, add one more domino to the stack of dominoes. It's, it's, there's some something with some meaning behind it. People have a tendency, there's a, there's a natural human proclivity to rally around something like that, but finding what that can be can be difficult. That's fair. Chopping enough away, you know, carving enough away from the marble to leave the statue is no small task. And so I, I want to contextualize for people. In 2017, um, Cohen sold off a, a, a part of the business so that this focus was possible, like a, you know, a, a warrior shedding some of their armor, so to speak. Can you talk about the lead up to that when, yeah. you, when you got clarity and then what the steps look like to actually make that possible? Well, for, I think it's an invitation to say something that everybody should know. And that is that effortless perfection doesn't exist. If people sort of say, wow, that's freaking so easy and great and phenomenal, I should do that too. Well, that's not reality. Mm-hmm. Things happen iteratively and they happen with failure more than they happen with success. And so our story and our modern story, our current story, probably begins, uh, we made an acquisition in uh, 2011, where we built up our energy business and had a wholesale fuel distribution component to it, and it had an energy field services component to it. So we actually started verticalizing our business then. It was an amalgam. In 11, we, we built up, we said this is going to be a vertical. Then we, from that, we made other verticals. 
So we had a energy vertical. We had a transportation vertical. Because you had over 100 plus rolling stock vehicles out there. We had a markets or a retail you know, convenience vertical. And then we have our tire business, tire retail business. And we have our land business. So we verticalized the business. Secondly, we made an acquisition, two of them actually, in 2000, late 2012, girthing up our retail business. So as not only do we verticalize, we started to create critical mass. A small acquisition of 14, we operated the business very deliberately in 15 and 16, all the verticals, which led us up to having created in the Cohen Energy and Cohen Transport business, we were at you know, the leading wholesale fuel distribution business in our market area. And we had some of the highest performing, some of the highest market share energy field services business attached to that, to the point where it was, it had value and to the point where it was able to be, it probably should have been delivered or was appropriately delivered to a larger concern, which could take it to the next level. And that created an inflection point for us strategically to take that Cohen Energy and Cohen Transport business and we sold that to Sprague Operating Resources, which is a public company. Their resources, their growth, etc., allowed that business to thrive even further. Meanwhile, in monetizing that, which seems like a failure, not at all. I think if part of our job is to build value is we're part of what we're doing is creating these entities that can live beyond us. And in that instance we did, but we took those resources and we then started to build up, continue to build up our other verticals, namely the Cohen markets convenience vertical. And in 2018, we acquired the Kogos chain. So we literally went from 26 store chain to over 60 in a short amount of time, in part through acquisitions and both companies and single sites. Now you have critical mass. When you take a look at our map, which is the tri-state market in the Pittsburgh area, because we're in Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, and we're in that tri-state market area around Pittsburgh, we got lots of dots. It's clustered in the retail context called clustering. Then it took us to our next opportunity, our next goal. That goal is to have one brand, one image. We had a, we had a, a collection of assets, which were acquisitions, Kogos, Quick King, you know, unbranded, heritage stores, etc. Put them all under the Cohen banner. So we have one name, we have one image. From there, we want to have a base offer. When you come into our store, you should expect a base offer. And there's another differentiation of that with the Cohen Kitchen, where we have our full food service offer, but we only have a base offer. And then the third thing is that allows us to have one voice. This is a, an analog I heard from a famous coach once, but you know, if you're going at something with an open hand, you're not going to be effective and you're going to probably rip one of your fingers. If you go out with a closed hand and a fist, much more impactful. Effectively, with one image, base offer, one voice, we're able to speak differently, act differently, perform differently. And that's where we are today. So my point is, it was definitely evolutionary. We made mistakes along the way. We had stops and we had starts. But I think where we are today is we can see momentum on our critical goals. Our growth pillars for 2021, we're working hard at. Our team knows where we are relative to their 2021 goals. And we can see success. And what happens when you cross that inflection point, 
you start getting a virtuous cycle. Success begets success. And the team members are able to more further in, uh, articulate, iterate, and have their own elements of energy and contribution as to where we are, where we're going. And that's, there's some magic in that after you cross that inflection point. But it takes some time to figure it out. And we, we took some time to figure it out. When was the first point at which you started to feel specifically that virtuous cycle start to not just be in your head, uh, like, oh, imagine if it could be, but I'm actually seeing it come to fruition? Well, we certainly saw that in the Cohen Energy business because we were, we grew that thing. We scaled it. Yeah. And that was probably in the early, you know, 2012, 13, we were growing rapidly. And we saw success beginning success and how we try to institute new things. I'll tell you where you begin to identify it. There are three things I think every company should be thinking about. And I know there's this silly little, I mean, people think in tautological terms all the time. They'll compartmentalize it in books of three or whatever. But truthfully, people, process, and technology. That's a rubric through which we've tried to look at our business, change our business, grow our business. And I started really full-time here around 2015. Basically left what I was doing in private equity and prior to that investment banking and started commuting here because I live outside of New York. I live in Connecticut. But when we started looking at our business through those three different lenses, we tried to understand our people capable as leaders. Do we need to challenge them a different way? Do we need to organize, organize ourselves differently? Do we need to, maybe people have, and maybe the business has outgrown some people and the, the, all three occurred. Then we started thinking about processes. Businesses become more complex. We need to actually codify. And then we started looking at technology and how can we make our job easier how could we truncate the time in between decisions and make decisions with more information? And how can we actually enhance the customer experience, whether it's a wholesale commercial customer or a retail customer using technology? And we did that with all of our businesses, and it showed up. And you see, you get those things down, you see the inflection point pass, and you see the virtuous cycle begin. The Going Deep podcast is underwritten by Piper Creative. Shooting, editing, and publishing quality content is overwhelming. We make it easy so you can save time, build your brand, and grow faster. Say hello at pipercreative.co. So another part of the growth story with both the energy business and some of these other businesses were these acquisitions. Yeah. And I have to imagine that the background you had on Wall Street, in private equity, making deals. At one point, you were with Avista Capital Partners, which... Uh, managed $4 billion in assets under management. How can you talk about the relevance of those types of experiences as it pertained to the deal-making that was required to build Cohen as yeah, sure. an operator? I mean, my, my biggest career time was spent at J.P. Morgan in investment banking, where I was a senior member of their consumer group, where we did M&A, that is mergers and acquisitions, help companies buy companies, help companies be sold or sell division themselves, taking companies public, raising capital, be either debt capital or equity capital. And then I ran a group globally at Deutsche Bank. I was a global consumer head at DB. And um, and then afterwards, I, I had a short stint in private equity, as you mentioned. And it's a good question. How do you go from a service business to uh, a basically a line operating position? And I, that's true. There is a transition. And the transitions are, you would think, be really hard, but I think it depends on what your experiences are and who you are and what you want to do. And I'll tell you a quick aside. When I come to Pittsburgh, I stay with my mother. <laughs> I'm like a 56-year-old dude still in my, you know, sleeping in the bedroom I grew up in my mom's house. Like, oh, gosh. But I found 
my college application, which, by the way, we had a hand type. It wasn't worth processing then. We had on a piece of paper, which they gave to you. Damn. And uh, the supplemental or whatever, the essay, was all about I wanted to be an entrepreneur then. It took 25 years to do that, although there's entrepreneurism and investment banking and private equity. But that was a journey I wanted to be on from a long, long time ago. And so with that in mind, when you think about, okay, taking the skill sets and experiences from investment banking and private equity investing is one of the things that we do in investment banking and private equity is we have to get answers to the questions, why? And there's that diligence, due diligence element to it that really helps to sort of really understand why something is happening. Secondly, we those those businesses as services businesses have a higher pace. We're transactional, we're customer service oriented. You have to be. You have to hustle. It's super competitive. And so that I think is highly translatable. Thirdly is the analytical component to it. I think that there is I mean I think on Excel. I love it. And I can do presentations in PowerPoint, what have you. We raise the game on how we project ourselves to all of our vendors, in fact. And the way we behave with our, our bank, for example, we're like a poster child. We have self-imposed you know, quarterly meetings with them where we give them a presentation, which is very professionally done, very detailed done. And that, that creates a lot of goodwill with your vendors. So that's translatable. And sometimes it could be frustrating because, you know, in investment banking, you know, we're used to people working until 10 o'clock at night on weekends, but I'd say that due diligence mentality, that fast-paced, high-level professionalism, service orientation, customer service-minded feature, high analytics, detail-oriented are all trans- translatable. And if you have the strategic wrapper around that, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I'm so excited that I get to talk to you about pace because it's something that I, if, if I was asked to boil down my meager relative advantages to other people, uh, I, I think that I have the capacity or the willingness to work at that kind of aggressive pace. We, we, we get commentary on, can't believe how much content you guys put out, the, the kind of relentless rate at which there's a new episode yeah. every week and all that kind of stuff. Um, and my question to you as someone who has been in that environment where investment banking, it's known for it, you know, they just had the right. whole... Goldman Sachs associates uh, yeah. flow up and all that kind of stuff. Um, and when you come to an industry, and we, we talked with um, Stephen Muck when he acquired Brayman uh, back when he was 31, and he said a similar thing. He talked he talked about buying this construction firm that was, he, in his words, sleepy because he was coming from investment banking and there just wasn't that same type of pace. I can understand how you know a, a culture where that's kind of embedded to some degree starts to feed on itself. But when you're trying to make that shift, you've also alluded to maybe some people with just, this isn't the right person for this type of role. Have you witnessed people really meaningfully changing their pace? Or is it maybe there's like a, a slight range on the personal level and you just kind of have to optimize for bringing in talent in the door that's ready and willing to move at a pace that you need as an organization? You may have heard of Strength Finders or Gallup or these other types of personality studies. I've heard of them. To, in, in all transparency, I'm pretty ignorant about the validity of them. I, I kind of come in a little bit skeptical. It, it, you can be, but where I was heading with these, because we've done, we did that one point with our senior team. The benefit of that is that you know more about yourself and you know more about your audience or the, or another person, and from that knowledge, you're able to adapt so that you might 
approach you, Aaron, differently than you might approach Hannah because you guys have pre- different predispositions. And I'm using that analog to sort of say it's the same. It is critical to have that mindset around anybody you you're, you're with. Whether you're in investment banking trying to pitch a deal, you need to know your audience. So I think I had to relearn my audience and calibrate against that. And I think that there's a slow change where I think there's an evolution where your culture starts being the arbiter of how people behave versus like an individual. If we're just individual-based, we're going to lose. We have almost 700 people. You cannot be individual-based company and have 700 people and have them articulate what our mission statement is or what our vision is and actually have them believe it and actually have them do it. That has to be something inside, and you get that from that culture. And we've worked on that. Our senior leaders today have high professionalism, high integrity, high care, high performance, and we talk constantly about communication and collaboration with the senior team. We talk about working and sitting around round tables, that it's us making a decision, and you get that sense of ownership. These all sound like amorphous stuff, but it takes time, but we morphed into that kind of culture around here, and I I'm pretty much say with confidence, you go to our senior leaders, you will see that. They know their functions, they know what their role is, they know how to challenge other people, they also know what a good challenge is and like a pain in the ass challenge is. They know what good communication looks like and what bad communication looks like. And it never it's not always perfect. But that'll that was definitely a transition personally to sort of come to the to an organization like that and then have the organization morph up to a level that has that high performance. And I think we're I think we have that now. It's evident. How did you approach recruiting those type of people into your organization? Yeah, that's a good question. First off, we moved to this type of facility. And I think it makes a difference. Because physical the physical cues and the environment set a tone. If you're in a dumpy office and you dumpy furniture and whatever, you don't care about this, that's not clean, you're making a statement. We have light we have new furniture. We have open uh, floor plan generally. We have potting. We have tons of technology. We have breakout rooms. We have a very nice pantry where we're, you know, people can make different types of foods. Some serious coffee bath- machinery. Definitely. <laughs> Our bathrooms are clean and they're they're comfortable. Yeah. Uh, it's safe and secure and on and on and on. That makes a difference. Number one. Number two. You know, we present ourselves in a different in a certain way. Our materials, how we articulate. Who we are, where we're going, can they understand it? Can they absorb it? Our level of expectation, our feedback. Once you get those first couple, the others become easier. And then once you get to several, it becomes easier still. Our quality has unquestionably gone up in recruiting. That's another virtuous cycle though, right? Because if, you know, Susie, Joe, and Sandra are all A players, they probably socialize with or network or know or have connections that are more likely to be A players. Not saying 100%, but... And maybe it's not, it, of course, word of mouth part of it, but the other part of it is, I see you guys out there. Yeah. Here's a simple example. We now have inbound inquiries from LinkedIn. Well, how does that happen? It's because we're becoming more on the frontal lobe of people. And you get to the frontal lobe through experience positive experience. You can be on a frontal lobe for negative experience, but but you reach out, if someone reaches out, if we have an inbound, it's management, it's marketing theory, but it's like, it's it's called pool demand. Yep. If 
we have consumer pool demand and we have labor pool demand, that means that we're delivering positive experiences that are creating a, a desire for somebody to then, you know, be pulled into it as compared to push where we're trying to sell something for the, with a cheaper price. That's the whole basis of HubSpot. HubSpot's entire thing, their inbound marketing conference, the whole idea is uh, someone that chooses to reach out to you, their entire psychological framing is different than someone who picked up a cold call. I'm probably going to be hurting your likes or whatever on podcasts, but your business is exactly that. Yeah. You get crap content, they're like, mm, waste of time, not doing it. Exactly. You get good content, they're going to reach out to it and they're tell somebody else about it. Exactly. 100%. We, we thank all the people that do comment and share our content with other people. And I do not buy for a second that this will be some sort of injury or push down our, our likes in any way, shape or form. I was not expecting to ask you about this, but this is, I don't think something we've explored before in past episodes of this show. So this is an amazing learning opportunity. You talked about how you have these quarterly meetings with the bank yeah. where you make these very professional uh, presentations to them. If I was going to try to guess the kind of why behind that or how that might work, what you're basically aiming for, if you've read a book like Shoe Dog, you know that they were in constant battle with their bank to try and finance the next inventory run, which was the basically primary constraint on their business's capacity to grow. And given that you've both done uh, acquisitions in the past or just the reality that cheaper access to capital, more readily access to capital is one of the constraints or, or, or kind of tools in the tool belt for a business trying to grow. So by doing your quarterly presentations, what I'm guessing is you are not only storytelling, but you know providing transparency to this very important partner of yours who would be providing the capital for an acquisition down the road or some other type of strategic move. One of our core principles is to treat our vendors like partners. If you hide the ball from a vendor partner, specifically a bank, you're going to take it. You're going to take it on the chin. If, on the other hand, you're open, transparent, you're quick to say what's good as well as what's bad. If you are delivering content, anticipating their questions, issues, and even teaching them something beyond that makes a huge difference. You know, we've been in situations where we'd have, you know, our accounts receivable would go up sky high relative to our line. Uh, or we're making acquisitions, or whatever it is, has never been a difficult discussion. And it's not like, ugh, I dread calling them. Or frankly, that they dread calling us. We get business done with them. We get business done with them fluidly, confidently, willingly. They call us to say, hey. And I know that's part of their job, because we are humans at the end of the day, as compared to transaction beasts. But I think we stand out as it relates to showing the good and the bad and the ugly. If there's a train coming, we want them to see that far, far, far before it gets in the tunnel. And we do that. So when would, so I'm sure you sat maybe on the other side of the table where we're able to bear witness to presentations yeah. like this, given yeah. your background at yeah, both yeah. Deutsche and, and JP Morgan. Yeah. When would you coach an entrepreneur or a business owner to start finding an avenue to do that? Because Hannon, we're a five-person company, three years old, like, we're still, you know, just getting yeah. a little bit of momentum off the, the pavement, so to speak, in the early days of what we're doing. Like, when is that relevant? Like, yeah, I that's a good question. Every, every business and every person are the same in that they are, they are fundamentally marketers. Yeah. You have to market yourself. And part of marketing is how do you present yourself? Your appearance, 
how do you speak, how you articulate your vision. And, you know, we, we would create, you know, materials sort of describing Cohen, where we are, where we're going again and again. And we would, they'd be good looking. Yeah, we made them in-house, but they were good looking. They were informative. And I think, you know, it depends on what your goals are, but I think networking and that part of your vendor community is critical. And I don't, I don't know why you wouldn't do that now. It depends on which, on which and where you're going. If you feel like there's a downstream need for capital, giddy up, go now. If you think it, it's optionality, sort of giddy up, but don't keep it on the, on the bottom of your list all the time. But networking, it can, can never hurt you. But I do think you need to present yourself. Take a packet, put together five pages, 10 pages. What is your company today? Where do you want to go? What are the issues that you're dealing with? How do you want to get there? Is there a capital need? What's it look like? What is a capital need? Is it debt? Is it equity? Is it sub-debt? What are you going to use it for? How have you thought about that? If, if you're, if you're uh, comfortable sharing financing most of these most of these acquisitions through debt, like what is what is your perspective? I think we're balance sheet sophisticated. Uh, we're very good at understanding asset values. We're under, good at understanding cash flow, cash flow coverage. I think very fluid in those concepts. I think it's easy. I think to some degree, I'd like to think it's easy. Our bankers may say differently, but I think it's pretty easy conversing with them. Uh, we have a very similar language, so we have the right facilities to help us grow, both as it relates to a revolver, which we need because of the timing differences between receivables and payables. We have term facilities, both that which is, uh, you know, uh, long-term debt that is existing, as well as longer-term facilities on which we can draw for capital expenditures and so on and so forth. We look at that. We talk to them all the time about it. Part of our quarterly meetings, when we make acquisitions, we have a certain, you know, approach on financing and it's fluid. It's good. I want to aim towards wrapping up, but I also want to ask about you know, you talked about the density of these retail locations and how that's a, an important part of not only just creating kind of brand awareness, but to have, you know, repeat customers like they're maybe not specifically in the exact same yeah. geographic region. Yep, yep. Given that you have this kind of tri-state area focus, can you talk about like if, if there is a goal for the number of locations that you're trying to get to? Are you at that goal and it's about building up those locations? Yeah. How do you balance those types of priorities when focus is key to seeing all your goals accomplished? I don't, I don't think we look and say we want to be X number of locations. We have two material goals, which we, I think, are on our way to reaching. The first is what I call the blindfold test. We want somebody to be taken a blindfold, come to one of our stores on the outside, maybe take the name off the building, take the blindfold off and ask the question, where are you? And then answer, oh, I'm going to come same thing inside. Come into one of our stores with the blindfold on, take the cone signs off inside, blindfold off, where are you? I'm at a cone. Maybe ideally even keep the blindfold on, just smell the check-in. Could be. <laughs> That's one. Okay. Goes back to image and voice and base offer. The second is that we want to be that convenience chain with the highest customer loyalty to create that consumer pool demand. We've been talking a lot about virtuous cycles. That's another example or application or, or circumstance where virtuous cycles make a difference. As they do in human capital population in our business, as it relates to our business relative to consumers, at some point we come into the frontal lobe and through consumer pool demand and they desire to come to one of our stores and then they start using our loyalty platform and we're able to demonstrate X amount of uh, transactions using that loyalty platform. And of course, the more successful we are, 
we will continue to transform our portfolio, which is what we're doing right now. And um, uh, we have our next generation of Coinsight, which we're developing, which would be a new build. And um, I think that too should be additive so that it continues in that same vein. Technology obviously will help the internal processes, B2B softwares, you know, all over the place these days. But at the consumer experience, you know, we're seeing not only the competition with the conventional C stores that you would have come up, you know, if anyone's in PA, they know the two brands, I'm not going to say them, but that, that, you know, every Pennsylvania seems to have an opinion on in some way, shape or form. But there's also now, you know, DoorDash has introduced Dash Mart, sure. Uber Eats is introducing sure. their kind of these convenience store bodega on an app yeah, type yeah. of solutions. When you think about the the wide range of potential, I don't know if attack vectors is necessarily the right term, but um, what role do you see technology playing in the consumer experience of someone coming to one of your locations? Well, a great role. And if we don't think that there is a role or someone doesn't think that there is a role, back to my Darwinian point, they'll be figuring out pretty soon where they ought to be, which is probably not in business. Take a step back for a second. There's 155,000 convenience stores in the United States. Wow. More than any other channel of trade by far. I think something like 90% of America is within 5 to 10 minutes of a convenience store. Secondly, it's extraordinarily fragmented. There's like 90,000 single store operators. There's a fragmentation in a business construct that is not seen much. Thirdly, there are 165 million transactions a day in the convenience industry, which means every two days, all of America basically is going to a convenience store. And when you hear folks like Amazon say, look, we can't make money under two, two hours. Can't do it. You're not going to app a cup of coffee. Guarantee you by the time you get that coffee delivering on an app, it's going to be cold. Some people, like me, no. It gets lukewarm. I'm done. There will be a role for convenience. So I'm not trying to snow anybody to say, hey, let's not think about DoorDash or Uber Eats or whatever, but rather how do we harness that? And that is something that we think is great for us. So if you are at home and you want our chicken, our famous chicken, we can get it to you through one of those mechanisms. Because what you were saying, at the, very, technology. What you were saying at the very beginning is if, if you're just microwaving something right. and putting it in a cardboard box, right. I've got a microwave at my house. I can go get freezer food if I want to and microwave something if that's what I actually have a taste for. But if you have a specific offering that is mm-hmm. that type of differential. I guarantee you if you came and ate our chicken or our pizza, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you will say, wow, it is distinctive. I literally, I, I had not yet tried the chicken, but the fact that I see on the new design, our famous chicken around the front and your vociferous endorsement of it, it Get will be tried. Get on it, my man. I'm telling you, and you deserve to do that and talk about it on your podcast. But uh, I think that there is real differentiation there. Because in other words, we're talking about a value proposition. Yeah. But the other aspects of technology which are important are how we communicate with our guests when they're in the store, how we communicate with our guests when they're not in the store. Our mediums through which we communicate now are definitely more towards the digital than they are, you know, on air, uh, on, you know, terrestrial radio or whatever. Yes, we do those. Yes, we do billboards, but we also do a lot around digital marketing. Uh, we, our loyalty platform is distinctive. We have a great loyalty platform. It's a points-based system. It's an app-based system uh, or platform. Uh, and people can come in and they could record their, you know, they could use their loyalty card and buying both goods and services on the forecourt, i.e. gas, as well as in our stores, including food. And you can pay with that through a mobile pay feature. 
It's frictionless. We can pass on the savings of that payment. In our, in our case, we have an ACH-based mobile payment platform where uh, we pass on those savings to the customer in the form of cents off a gallon. So our base offer is three cents. If you're part of our Club Cohen, you get three cents rollback off the price of fuel. If you're a Club Cohen member and you have mobile pay, you get an additional seven cents up to 10 cents rolled back. In addition, you could stack those. One of the things that we do is we offer, I think, top quality gas, fuel, and Amoco. We are the Amoco provider in our market area. If you see a Cohen, it will be an Amoco. If you see an Amoco, it will be a Cohen. And that's distinctive because we can, at, we can ask in tongue-in-cheek, do you know what's in your tank? Cohen knows what's in your tank. You can get 25 more miles to a tank of gas with our quality fuel. It's that good. So when we have that with our Club Cohen and Amico, we can stack additional rewards on top of our 10 cents. So there's this really cool element of depth where that technology platform could lead to a significant savings. And of course, people can accumulate the points and they can redeem them inside the store. Other points of technology is self-checkout, which is being installed. We're working on uh, as well a um, checkout less technology platform and so on and so forth. So technology is very meaningful. It's what, what we should be doing. So you talked about everyone is in marketing and I, I keep saying what we're about to wrap up, but you, you keep opening these other doors for me to explore. What I hear very clearly in both the example that you just laid out with the fuel that's being offered at one of your locations, and then also the fresh chicken, the fresh food compared to something that was heated up in a microwave, is this very um, a strategic level cognizance for counter positioning. We are not that. We are this. There's of a very kind of specific of area that we occupy. What I'm curious to hear about is when you know it, it feel it feels great to find yourself in an opportunity to kind of position yourself sure. but it also requires this moment of i would basically say empathizing with the competition to understand why they're not doing that why can't they what is inhibiting them so could you could you paint a picture from your vantage point not saying it's prescriptive but why is that why is what you articulated not the standard convenience store not the standard gas station experience for people well, the fragmentation point I made earlier definitely speaks to why. Okay. And those that are doing it in our market, which we happen to be a convenience-rich market in Pittsburgh, where we have, you know, a couple decent-sized players out there, and, and I think what they do is they teach a consumer what good looks like. And in a way, they pave the road for us through what good looks like. And that obviates that part of the market, which doesn't look good. So if we are competitive with the experience, which is the human experience of service, it's the physical experience of our retail environment and the culinary experience in our case with our food offer, which we think is different, we then have a positive, ex we, get, we are in that same virtuous cycle as a consumer that we are, quote unquote, what good looks like and therefore are part of the choice set. Secondly, we are not mutually exclusive vis-a-vis -vis the other what good looks like convenience store operators on. You can go to us and you can go to them. By the way, when you come to us, you know it's different. When you go to them, some instances you might get the, the commissary-based product that's heated up in the microwave and shoved in a, in, a, in a cardboard box. 
to come to us. We're making it. We're making it right in the back. In many instances, you can see it. You can smell it. And when you have it, you will taste it. And so we're not mutually exclusive to embedded players. We are clearly distinctive vis-a-vis the rest of the market, which is the biggest part of the market. And that's how we think Cohen wins. We are born here. We are raised here. We are the hometown guys. Found in 1923, long before others in this market. Uh, People have seen our name. We've had other businesses have, have had our name around for a while. So there's some embedded equity to it. And I think we're delivering on our mission and are on our way to our vision. So I think, back to your original question, we have points of distinction, not dissimilar to fast food chains. It's exactly the same, actually. Fast food chains do better when they congregate. So if you have three or four fast food, whatever, brands or, or, or businesses congregated together, more people will be drawn to that as a point of destination. Similarly, away from the physical example, but as an industry standpoint, if we're part of that choice set of what good looks like in high-level convenience experience, more people will want to use it so that we then become actually an alternative to QSR. Our food's that good. It's better than most, most of the QSRs. And I think that's positive. Well, I'm hungry. It's almost dinner time. I'm going to have to definitely try uh, some of that chicken very, very soon. And I will encourage uh, people, if they are in the region, to check it out and, and stop by one if they have you not should. yet stopped by a Cohen Oil. Uh, but Charlie, before I ask the standard last two questions that we wrap up every interview with, uh, is there anything else that you were hoping to share today that I just didn't give you the chance to? We are uh, a work family. Our team members, I, th- I think, like coming to work. Uh, we try to give them good experience. What we do and how we do every day is meant to not only impress and satisfy our guests with every visit and make their lives simpler, as are our customers, but that translates too to our team members. And I think, I think by and large, people feel it. In fact, I'll tell you this, our turnover rate at our business is roughly half the industry average. That's a big deal. It is a big deal. It's a really big deal in our industry. We've, we've done interviews with folks in, in trucking and similar rates of particularly high turnover types of industries. Mm-hmm. And if you are differentiated. Pitt, Ohio is, is one of those for, for this region where they don't see the same rate of mm-hmm. truck driver turnover. Yep. And that is all sorts of downstream to your training costs, your yep. rate of errors, things like that. 100%. I mean, we, we, we can and are getting better. Uh, I think COVID has goobered it up as it has for everybody. I think there's other things that have goobered it up, including the labor market dynamics, which are probably a whole new separate podcast. And I won't stump speech that one, but um, I'm, I'm psyched about that. Our Cohen family has, has a lot of good going for it. That's awesome. Well, if folks want to learn more, uh, what digital coordinates, if any, can we point them towards sure. if they want Cohen to Sure. Cohen1923.com is our website. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can find, find us on Instagram, which is, by the way, hilarious. Uh, there are, I think, many funny kind of meme-ish type aspects to that. I think our, our team member who manages that is, does a great job. And you can interact with us with our loyalty app. Download the app. The Club Cohen app is right there. It's in the uh, appropriate you know, app stores. See what it says. See how it experiences. Uh, come to our store. Use it. Sign up for our mobile pay, which is excellent. And uh, we get significant value delivery to our customers for that. But those are four really good ways to interact with us digitally. And we hope that on the loyalty side, you actually do do that. And you come to our stores and you use it. Beautiful. We're going to link that in the show notes for people. Uh, they'll be able to find it in the podcast app where you're probably listening to this right now 
or at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. But Charlie, before I let you go, you've been very gracious with your time. I'd like to give the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. That's a good question. And I might answer an A and a B. A on the on the sort of professional side or business side for many of your audience members who are in business or interested in business, I think that a significantly positive way to look at your business is through that trilateral lens of people, process, and technology. Compartmentalize those features of your company, uh, your business plan, your business strategy, whatever it is, through that lens. And it really, I think, does help functionally address what you need to do to get where you want to go. People, process, and technology. On the personal front, I think that people really need to continue to remind themselves that they're just not alone. Sometimes people think that they have to do things themselves. Nobody succeeds alone. That's the first statement. And secondly, I think people should be reaching out to their mentors, to their support team members. Get your tribe. Interact with them. People need to be reminded of that. I think our digital world, interestingly, makes it a little bit of a larger world, but also makes it a smaller world. And I think we need to break that cycle. It's easy, it's easy to become or feel atomized in a digital-only environment. 100%. And I, frankly, I'll take that a step further. It's easy in a digital world to feel inadequate because a lot of digitization is curated. And when you look at smiley, happy people doing fun things together in a snapshot or even a video, that microcosmic example does not suggest the general. That's a moment in time. Unfortunately, I think people in you know the early 20s generation or the kind of teens, mid-teens to the mid-20s generation, look at those microcosms as suggesting the broader sense of the reality, like the consistent experience of those who are doing that. That is so false. And I think what that does is corrupts people's thinking. Uh, uh, and when you get distorted thinking like that, I think people can get negative on themselves, can get lonely, uh, and COVID certainly has ramped that up. I think people need to remind themselves that, you know, hey, we're in this together. Reach out to your people. Be connected. The human experience is a great experience. The snippet on whatever digital thing is not real experience. I am uh, I full-throatedly endorse and affirm what you're saying, and I think that I see the digital as being this like really higher variance instrument. Where I, I totally agree with you. Very easy to get taken in a, a negative direction. It is also highly empowering for creating in-person opportunities, like the opportunity to talk with you today, sure. which I'm super appreciative for. So if you can be, if you can bring a lot of mindfulness to it, it can be a gateway to opening uh, opportunities for you. But totally agree. Tread carefully. Charlie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really oh, enjoyed talking with you. My pleasure entirely. Thank you for your time. We just went deep with Charlie McElvain. Hope you're not there. Has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Charlie. If you enjoyed hearing about a family business and how it can absolutely transform in just one generation, I think you'll also enjoy my past conversation with a fellow Cannonsburg-based company, Saris Candies. I interviewed Bill Saris, who is the second generation owner, took his father's one-man candy business and built an empire out of it. I thought it was super cool. Will be a perfect addition to what you heard in this most recent episode. It's linked in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.